communicate with you as well. I'm going to invite Teresa to come share this morning's reading from Scripture, and when Teresa is finished, we will invite Rebecca to come and share the sermon this morning. Today's passage comes from John chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. But then Mary took a pint of pure nard. It's an expensive perfume. And she poured it on Jesus' feet. And then she wiped it with her, her hair. Wow. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Jesus Iscari Judas Iscariot, <clears throat> who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but, but to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Mm, so the chief priests, they made a plan to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus, and they were believing in him. But the next day, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches. And they began to shout, Hosanna! And they'd say, blessed, blessed is he, he who came in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things, that had, they had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look at the whole world has gone after him. Thank you, Teresa. Good morning. This morning on Palm Sunday, little Evelyn Martin stole my heart up here, waving the palm branches at her dad and stomping her feet in the same beat to her drumming. It was a sight to see from the front row here. So this morning, I'm here to talk to you about what we've called the prosperity roadblock. It's one of our, one of the, um, 
what we've been what we've been following. <laughs> and there's a slide just to start us off. Um, a name you might, might recognize, Albert Einstein. He says, not everything that counts can be counted. Well, not everything that can be counted counts. I'd just like us to hold that in the back of our minds a little bit as we go through this morning, and I might come back to that later on. We'll see. So earlier this month, um, Jindy and I had the chance to attend a dinner party. It was actually a royal feast, and it was in honor of a friend's birthday. The long table was beautifully set. There was crusty baked loaves on the dinner table. There was some local wine served, and there was fresh figs on each plate setting. There's a few pictures to go with this. There was a knight in attendance at the dinner table. There was a wizard. You can see the long place setting here. And there's another picture, I believe, of a king and a queen in attendance, the king and queen of Honer Avenue. And I don't know if you can see it on the right-hand side, but the main course was 15 smoked turkey legs, drumsticks, as they call them. And turkey drumsticks look amazing and appetizing, but they are actually really harder to eat than you would think. It's a bit of an awkward thing. I'm not sure if Tim got through both of those that are in his hands, but we'll see. <laughs> so that was my little take of a dinner party. But what we just heard was the story from John chapter 12. At a similar dinner party, maybe minus the turkey drumsticks, Mary anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. But this incident is not isolated. It's not out of place. The whole context behind it is everything. The supper takes place on the Saturday night before Palm Sunday, which was the beginning of the Holy Week. The dinner is also five days before the very last supper that would take place later this week on the Thursday evening. In fact, some scholars have nicknamed this supper in the town of Bethany as the second to the last supper. At the end of this week that we're in is also Good Friday. So in less than a week, Jesus will be dead and buried, and the shadow of impending death hangs over this supper, this dinner party, in a very real way. And who is Jesus eating with? Who's around him at the table? Along with his disciples, who are his closest friends and followers, the guests are Mary and her sister Martha and their brother, brother Lazarus. We heard a little bit about the story of Lazarus last week in the death roadblock when Brandon talked about Lazarus being dead and then Jesus overcoming that. So the shadow of death is not just something in the near future with Jesus' death, but it's also in the recent past with Lazarus. When we witnessed in our aisles here a display of celebration and music and the kids wearing, waving the palm branches, Jesus would have seen much of that in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. What a sight it must be. It's easy to get caught up in that celebration. It's just like a sporting event or a parade. And it's easy to get caught up in the revelry. But what happened before, out of the public eye, the pre-game kind of pep talk? So if we back up a week or so, John tells us that Jesus entered the town of Bethany six days before Passover 
because Lazarus, along with Mary and Martha, had invited him for dinner at their home. Now keep in mind that the sisters here, um, Mary and Martha, had just witnessed a huge emotional upheaval. They went through a range of emotions in that week. There was sadness that their brother was sick. There was desperation, it alludes to desperation, in their bequest to ask Jesus to come and heal him. Then there was frustration when Jesus seemingly did not come to their aid in time. If you remember last week, Jesus stayed where he was for several days. If you had asked a friend for help to come and you felt that it was an emergency, you would be frustrated when they didn't show up. So the sisters are going through this huge curve of emotions. And then at the end of it, there was grief and anguish. Their brother had died. He stayed dead for four days. And in those women's minds, in the sisters' minds, that was the end. There wasn't any more. But then the highly emotional encounter between Mary, specifically, and Jesus is given special attention to in the account of John. Mary said to Jesus when she met him on the road, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, and he trembled. Jesus wept. I believe that that emotional context is so um, powerful for what happens next in the story that we're talking about today. Because the death of a loved one has such a powerful effect on those in close proximity. There's so many powerful raw emotions that come up and that spring to the surface at that time. Emotions that are good and emotions that are just strong and hard to deal with. After losing someone we love to death, it's really common to think back to the last encounter that we had with them while they were living. In this case, both Mary and Martha had given up hope after their brother had died, but then their hope was unexpectedly returned in a miraculous way through Jesus overcoming the death of Lazarus. So now, several weeks later, Lazarus is fully alive and well, and the Bible account tells us he was reclining at the dinner table. It seems like a very relaxed position to take for someone who has just been raised from the grave. And in walks his sister Mary, overcome with gratefulness. And in front of all the guests, she takes a pint of pure nard and pours it on Jesus' feet and wipes it with her hair. I loved this photo when I was searching for images of Mary. It was just a tender, tender image of Mary. She's sort of reaching out and touching Jesus, but it's so humble. She's just showing her devotion and her utter her love. And her hair is sort of trailing down a little bit. So can you picture a liter of oil? In modern day terms, maybe picture a liter, a liter of the most expensive essential oil that you know. And pouring it out on someone's, in this case, probably very dusty feet. The house was suddenly filled with fragrance. It changed the whole atmosphere of the home. It changed the scent. Mary's action here was an act of love. It was a gift to Jesus, but not just any gift. It was a lavish gift. It was given freely and without any reservation. 
It was such an intimate expression of her love. And to me, it had such a feminine touch and quality to it. Mary demonstrated her love by freely giving of her financial resources. In this case, it was perfume. And she did this gifting without caring at all about her reputation or the criticism she might receive from the giving. She gave out of total and utter devotion to Jesus. Her gift was so personal, she was quite literally pouring out her love for Christ by sitting at his feet and wiping them with her perfume. But enter Judas, stage right, who's sitting at the dinner table, and there's a really sharp contrast. We hear his remark. It was public criticism. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? In my mind, I hear a very sarcastic man, a very sarcastic comment coming from the side. Now, we know, because the narrator John tells us, that Judas didn't actually really care about the poor as much as he did to pocket the money himself because he was a thief, as Teresa had read in the scripture reading. He acted as treasurer of the group of disciples, but he was secretly embezzling their funds. But chances are at this actual dinner party that the guests who were witnessing Mary's gifts may not have known the secret side of Judas yet. They might not have seen his black market deals. So as they listened to his words and his criticism, they could probably see some logic in them. The perfume that Mary was given was worth one year's wages. So let's say an equivalent here I don't know, I tried to guess, like 50000 for average yearly income. And those funds could go a long way. In our context here, $50,000 could go a long way at the food bank, at the soup kitchen, towards refugee sponsorship. We could get a few families in for that. In youth offender programs or addiction support centers, it could have helped a lot of people. It could have been spread out more. So Judas was appealing to the economic logic of the time, while Mary was being extravagant. Mary's generosity is a very stark contrast to Judas's stinginess, because we know here his secret ulterior motives. He wanted to use the money for himself. Judas was focused on his own personal prosperity, and he got so stuck in that mentality that he actually missed recognizing the very true heart of Mary's actions, and the grace it required for her to give love without calculating the cost. But does the economic argument have a valid point? Judas is appealing to common sense, at least what he sees as common financial sense in this case. And by stating his criticism publicly, he's appealing to the disciples maybe to get on his side. I want you to try and think of Judas as having a poverty mentality or scarcity mentality. And that means where we hang on so tight to things because we see the world as having very limited resources. Well, in reality, God has overabundant resources, enough for all of us. So prosperity in this sense can be a roadblock to our following of Christ if we are not willing to live sacrificially, but instead are focused on ensuring that we prosper personally, and we hold on so tight. 
But what does it mean to truly be prosperous? Well, if you ask my kids, being prosperous would, be having, would mean having a few more nickels in their wallet. This fall, we were playing at an outdoor playground one afternoon, and we were the only ones there, and Miles was running around and found a $5 bill sort of folded up on the side of the playground. Now, for a seven-year-old who counts his earnings in nickels, $5 goes a long way. He asked us if he could keep it. We said, well, fair's fair, like no one else is around. So in our family, our children have to save and share and spend with their money. So we said, you can do that and you can keep it. He was so ecstatic. He was so overjoyed. So that story got talked about all week to everyone he knew. And that would have been the end of it, might have been the end of it, except for the very next week, we were on a little family walk down the Iron Horse Trail and the kids were riding their scooters. We're actually heading to the credit union where our kids do their banking. And Owen found a $5 bill on the side of the Iron Horse Trail. Now this is a little random occurrence, especially week to week. Like how often do you actually find money? And $5, again, that's a lot for, for a, a, a young man. <laughs> again, we told him we could keep it if he divided it up between saving and sharing and spending. So he was overjoyed. Now Miles and Owen just started dreaming and dreaming. What are they going to do with their $2.50 in spending money? And everyone heard all about of it. So as most of you know, we have three kids. So now two had found money and one hadn't. Kobe started to pray. <laughs> I did ask him permission to say this. <laughs> he added to his nighttime prayers, please God, help me find a little bit of money. It doesn't have to be a lot, just a dime or a quarter, maybe two. He knows at City Cafe, four quarters will buy a donut. So I think that's what he was calculating in his mind. <laughs> well, this actually went on for a couple of weeks and we had a lot of rational conversations about this. Now, Kobe, you know, like finding money is really rare. Like it happens once in a while. Just the fact that it happened to both your brothers within a couple of weeks, that was, was a very random occurrence. So it's great that you're praying. Like if you need some money, maybe you could do some chores and make a little extra money. Like we can help you out. But Kobe just, he, no, the logic was not there. He wanted to find it. He wanted it to be given as a gift. Well, I decided to help out his prayers a little bit. <laughs> I did consult my husband, didn't see the logic in that. He said, you're going to do that, you're on your own. So I thought about it, I thought about it. I was like, okay, what's a good time that seems random, a public place, but not too public? <laughs> it's true, it's not great parenting advice, but it's very true. <laughs> so we were leaving the YMCA one evening after karate, and there's a little garden area, and I stopped to tie my shoe. And I took $5 out of my pocket and dropped it on the ground. And then I called to Kobe, 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 come back. What's that over there? It's like, what? Oh, it's $5, $5. That's what I was praying for. God answered my prayers. So I learned a very important lesson that day. 
If you're going to plant money for your kids to find, be very careful about the location that you choose. The garden at the YMCA has been trampled down every Tuesday night all year long by my kids looking for more money that people have dropped. I would not be surprised if no flowers grow there in the spring. We owe them an apology. Anyways, that was my gift of generosity to Kobe, and he may or may not know the real story behind that, but we'll talk about it someday. But back to our story here. Judas, the character of Judas, is demonstrating just this personal self-interest and prosperity and logic and economic reason and a bit of embezzling the funds. And he has contrasted, like, in just this huge proximity to Mary, who is focusing on others, and in this case, the prosperity of Jesus. Prosperity can mean, in the traditional sense, finances, or it can mean richness in love, in friendship, in generosity, and in community. I will argue here that Mary was very rich in love. That gift of hers to Jesus is a different take on stewardship. It's just this utmost devotion. It's unsensible, it's illogical, it's unheard of, it's shocking to all the dinner guests around, and it's honored by Christ. Mary's example gives us permission to honor Jesus in extravagant ways too, with our time, our money, our gifts, and our lives. And also remember her sister, Martha, is most likely serving all the dinner guests at the table here. Jesus responds to Judas's criticism. Leave her alone, he replies gently to Judas. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with you but you will not always have me. This story is not about refuting the church's love and service to the poor and to the marginalized. The poor are always with us, yes. And Martha, ever the activist, is not wrong in serving those around her. Judas is not entirely wrong in his declaration to share with the poor either. Both of these actions are equally important. But activism by itself will soon burn itself out if it does not include the extravagant generosity of God and his ability to provide for us. All of our striving and all of our best intentions will not change the world. Only God's love can do that. And that was exactly what Mary's gift symbolized. She dem demonstrated mindfulness in the moment when she knelt at Jesus' feet and gave her gift. And after suffering a great loss and death, I believe she is left emotionally and spiritually raw. The death of her brother brought about a different perspective, maybe even a change in her priorities. It's brought about a change in Mary's heart and an openness to understanding a little window of God's grace. Mary had walked the line close to the death of a loved one. And in this case, it has brought her closer to Christ. Despair can either drive us away or pull us that much closer into God's arms. There's a quote from Richard Floyd here that I'll read. The world, not to mention the church, would have a hard time running without any Marthas. 
But without the fragrant offering of the Marys, the church runs the risk of having an incorrect understanding of Jesus. Jesus is about grace, not bookkeeping. Which brings us to the Sunday after the dinner, which we celebrate today as Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is another take on the prosperity roadblock from the perspectives of the citizens and the crowds. The crowds gathered to celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry, and they were willing to follow Jesus with a condition. They believed that Jesus had the ability to free them from oppression under the Roman rule and bring prosperity to their nation. The crowds were so excited, and yes, can you blame them for their high hopes? Not really. They were acting much as we might. They were hopeful for change in a dark time, living under oppression. Change was due. And the truth is that Jesus was bringing about change, but not the kind of change that the crowds were looking for. Jesus did teach about freedom, but he didn't come to bring about the kind of freedom that we ch tend to chase after, but to give up his own prosperity for the sake of something a little better. The freedom that Jesus was truly bringing was hard to recognize when the Jewish people, even his own disciples, his closest friends, saw in him the possibility for a better life, perhaps a paradise, a new king for their kingdom. But what kind of kingdom was Jesus bringing? Henry Nguyen says, the words of, in the words of Jesus, set your hearts on God's kingdom first and all other things will be given to you as well. These words summarize best the way we are called to live our lives, with our hearts set on God's kingdom. That kingdom is not some faraway land that we hope to reach, nor is it life after death or an ideal state of affairs. No, God's kingdom is, first of all, the active presence of God's spirit within us, offering us the freedom we truly desire. And so, the main question becomes, how do we set our hearts on the kingdom first when our hearts are preoccupied with so many things? Somehow a radical change of heart is required, a change that allows us to experience the reality of our existence from God's place. In closing, I'll say that I believe Mary had experienced this very change of heart that Henry Nguyen is speaking of and that she responded by breaking down any barriers she may have once had and pouring out her heart in love and devotion. Mary was present in both her heart and mind, and she offered herself to Jesus in that moment. Critical judgment from Judas prevented him from being able to do the same, or even to appreciate what Mary was doing at that dinner table. Judas got stuck and his preoccupation with prosperity. Mary was able to move forward in her devotion and love for Christ. So how can we follow Mary's lead and do the same in our own lives? That's it from me. I'm just going to close with a word of prayer. And after I pray, we will invite you to join us in the gym, which is out the doors and behind me. And if you're new here this morning, we just sit at discussion groups at a table, and there's a set of questions that we pass around just to discuss a little further and hear your thoughts and opinions about this morning's message. So let us pray. 
Dear God, thank you so much for bringing us here today on a bright, sunny Palm Sunday. And thank you for helping us to just celebrate along with our children just the joy of that day and what that must have been. And help us keep you in our hearts today as we move forward, especially into this week. And just take the time to reflect on what you've done for us and what we can offer to you with our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be excused.